Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And that brought us to Rio Plus 2012, where we announced together with Mr. Richard Branson and Cabo Warum a robust goal to become totally sustainable by 2020. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 138 of Suncast. Today, we're rubbing elbows with heads of state. In October of 2009, Mike Eamon was sworn in as Prime Minister of the small island state of Aruba, a Dutch territory in the Caribbean. And over the course of eight years, he established a leadership position in Champion Renewables. In fact, Aruba became the first Caribbean island to declare a 100% renewable target way back in 2012, long before the recent fanfare we've covered here on the U.S. cities also taking up that banner in 2018. Today, Mike and I discussed how that came to be, what he had to overcome, what hurdles were in his way, and how his work is now helping other small island developing states with similar visions for sustainability. His perspective is a beautiful one, so I do hope you'll stick around to hear him explain. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice in the other 137 episodes over at mysuncast.com. Click on the listen button in the banner. And as I mentioned last week, I have a couple of coaching spots opening on my calendar for February. If you'd be interested in exploring working with me one-on-one, please send me an email and I'll make sure you get the application. I'll only be accepting two more people this quarter and I've already had some interest from the newsletter subscribers and last week who folks who listened. So hurry up as I'll be closing that on Monday. That email is nico at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, I'm excited about today's interview. We have the Honorable Mike Eamon, former Prime Minister for Aruba, joining Suncast. Welcome, Mike, to Suncast. Oh, thank you. It's an honor, uh, Nico, to have been invited by you. For those of you who aren't familiar with Mike, Mike is an Aruban politician and civic leader. He served, as I mentioned, as the Prime Minister of Aruba for eight years from 2009 to 2017, where he designed and implemented a vision for sustainable and shared prosperity. And we'll get into that today for the small island developing state of Aruba. I'd like to say he may be one of, if not one of the harbingers and uh, sort of uh, creators in the main uh, mainstay of accepting that verbiage as a, as a technology and acronym, uh, he certainly has been one to promote it more than most that I've seen. So Small Island Developing States, or SIDS, SIDS, maybe new to some of you, but it's, uh, the, it's the lifeblood of what Mike is about. He has put Aruba on a path to greater use of renewables. We'll talk a lot about the, uh, the Green Aruba Initiative. And I uh, wanted to give a shout out as well to our mutual friend from Solar Heads of State, James Ellsmore, for suggesting Mike as a guest. So Mike, I want to get a sense for the Suncast audience of your past. I'm going to reference a TED talk that I saw 
from 2014 that I will also link to in the show notes. And I think that it gives a good sense of the essence of the work you're trying to accomplish. I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to go take a look at it. But let's start by explaining for those who are unfamiliar, what is the Divi Divi tree and why is it significant to both Aruba and long-term planning? Well, Aruba is a, a very dry island. You have the Eastern Caribbean where uh, it's quite greener. And then you have the ABC islands, uh, which are close to the coast of uh, South America and are um, quite in a, a hotter zone uh, with less rain. Sorry, for those unfamiliar, ABC is Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao, which are the Dutch Antilles. Right, correct. And we have as part of the plants that grow in Aruba, aloe, because if you look at the landscape of Aruba, it looks very much uh, like certain areas I see pictures of. I have never visited Arizona, uh, but Aruba's uh, landscape looks very much like the pictures I see from Arizona with the cactus and, and the aloe vera type plants and, and, and that's certain uh, drought that there is also. In the middle of this landscape, if you drive around in Aruba, especially the rural area, uh, suddenly you, you will see a tree which uh, grows in one direction. Mm-hmm. And you ask yourself, what direction is that? Well, that's the direction of the northeast wind that uh, is quite continuously and quite strong in Aruba. And so this tree is a tree that gives us a beautiful example, I say, of sustainability because although Aruba is very dry, it survives, it's green, it stands there, it stands there for centuries, but it grows with the strength and the direction of the wind. So if you would translate that into our contemplation and reflection on how do we create a sustainable society is by having more respect and working more with nature. And that's actually what this plant really does uh, by growing in the direction of the wind because it would be very hard for this tree to survive if it would not go with that continuous strength of, of this northeast wind that we have in Aruba. So I very often uh, present the DVDV tree at the beginning of a presentation on sustainability. So uh, we can really reflect on the more profound meaning of what sustainability means. You have a profound understanding and history in politics. Your father was a, a notable leader of politics in Aruba in your childhood. And you, prior to entering into your own political career, were uh, active both in uh, civil law as well as in the scientific study of policy. How do you feel your civil law uh, sort of entrepreneurial experience? I may mention that even as a teenager, you were starting yes. businesses like screen printing. You've got this entrepreneur bug in you. How do you feel that your uh, your experience studying the development of policy ideas and understanding the legal framework has helped both as an entrepreneur as well as in your political pursuits? What I always feel that my law studies helped me a lot with is uh, for anyone that uh, studied law and uh, would know what I, I'm talking about is that one of the important courses you get in your first year of law is where is law found? 
what is the source of law? Uh, and it brings you all the way back, centuries uh, back, uh, in how concepts of what is equitable, what is right, have been developed in philosophies. Mm-hmm. And for a long time before things were written as laws, they were kind of legacies of what is right and what is wrong. And when you study uh, the source of law, you find a kind of a logic and uh, a logic that fits with a lot of the values you have about uh, society, about family, about community, and, and what is right and wrong. I don't know of many other studies that bring you back to that basic source of why did we make laws that say uh, we can do this and we cannot do that, that it has a basis. And you see also that when new laws are made sometimes that don't go back to that type of source and don't have that fundamental uh, background and principles that people cannot understand the law. It's, it's so modern and it's so technically to arrange something, but it doesn't have its uh, roots in an idea and a concept that already existed within mm-hmm. society. So when you ask me, how does law fit with what you have been thinking about what would be best for Aruba? Uh, how did it influence your ideas about mm-hmm. sustainability? Uh, Nico, I also share this uh, in speeches I give when I, I'm invited to talk about sustainability. Very often, it's at forums about renewable energy, and naturally, everyone who's there is coming to present technical advancement in, in solar energy, it's becoming more efficient, it's becoming cheaper, and wind, and, and, and all the new development in storage, batteries, etc., And I come in a little bit like, yes, in Aruba, we set an agenda for 100% sustainable energy, and we have been working at it through wind and sun and and looking at other options. But I speak also about how beautiful it is if you use that moment. And I, I, I relate it also a little bit to that famous moon speech of President Kennedy, we want to put the man on the moon before the end of the decade in the 60s. In that speech, he has a paragraph that says what is so interesting and so valuable of these challenges also is all the energy you're going to bring to bear to make this happen, this very one concrete thing, mm. but will also affect so many other things uh, because it will challenge so much new ideas, so much new innovations, new thinking that would impact a lot of other issues. And I believe that it would be a great thing, and and that's what I also did in Aruba, is when we started the discussion and the dialogue in Aruba about we want to become 100% sustainable by 2020 in the area of energy, Mm. we connected it to all other areas of policies. How do we protect the environment? How do we make the economy more equitable that everyone could maybe have a fairer share in the prosperity of the island? How do we uh, uh, enhance social cohesion, which we we all find 
is something very valuable for a country and for a community when people yeah. care about each other, neighbors care about each other. So I think that uh, the world stands at a very interesting time that realities of climate change is forcing us to think about how we produce our energy so we have less emission. But I would say we will be falling short of this historical moment if we would limit it to only finding a solution how we would produce energy so we have less emission and not use it as a moment to rethink, reflect on many other policy areas and use the momentum that you have and the awareness that you have that society must do certain things different and all that energy and, and intelligence and research uh, and, and community involvement that, that is being triggered by this realization, if we use it for other subjects like social economy and, and how we live with each other. I think it might be helpful to explain a bit the arc of history of what you inherited as prime minister. So you tell it better than I do. Uh, I'll give a brief summary here in the 80s. There were really two core contributors to GDP for Aruba. Through the 90s, there was sort of this tumultuous rediscovery of the country, of, of what you were going to do for income, how you're going to survive and become a sustainable, self-sustaining entity. By 2009, there, there was a fundamental shift in the way the island sort of income uh, was being generated and redistributed, which helps inform the way that you view policy on, on your island. You also were involved in, as I mentioned before, a scientific institute that looked at policies that lawmakers wanted to, to, to sort of bring to bear. One of the things that I noted from our previous conversation was that a lack of planning affects credibility of politicians. And so I think it's important for the listener to understand that Mike comes at problems before he came and now, but as he was coming into a political career, from the perspective that there are scientific ways to validate whether a policy is going to work and politicians ought to rest more on the scientific or be servants to the science that informs how the policies are going to work rather than just the bombast of what's going to get them elected. And I'll open this back up for you to sort of explore that topic within the context of how you approached Green Aruba. When you came into office 2009, by 2012, you did something which you've been alluding to in 2018 in the United States was heralded as the story of the year. So in, in, in 2018, the story of the year were over 100 cities and some uh, both municipalities and utilities had already declared this vision of 100% renewable energy, which is something that you're now all, almost six years into as a, as, an, as a country, right? Not as a municipality. That said, I mean, Aruba is smaller than, than most of our states. But the, the, the point is, as, as a state, you've declared this 100% renewable. I'd like to explore with you not only why that became important for Aruba, who you worked with, kind of how the integration with Rocky Mountain and Carver War Room and Jigger and his team helped push that forward. The fact that you halved your oil imports by 2014, right? The fact that you had many firsts as an island to move from this, this idea of five-star hotels to five-star lifestyle, five-star schools. Can we reflect a bit on, on that evolution as a, as a nation? I think that's also uh, very important because it is uh, what really explains why the view that uh, we have developed on our goals for how we would like to produce our energy in the future 
is linked to a, a broader vision. You brought us back to, to 2009, and I will go through it quite fast so people just uh, get just a glimpse and understanding a little bit, but not necessarily have to. It also shows the creativity and the capacity to bounce back of this small island uh, and, and, and its leaders in different other times uh, of our history. So I'll take you back to 1985, uh, oil refinery Exxon, actually, uh, in Aruba, historically important, uh, established uh, in the 1920s of the past century. Uh, and the reason for the establishment of the oil refinery in Aruba back then in the 1920s was the discovery of oil in Venezuela. Multinationals, see how much foresight they had, didn't want to establish their multinationals and all that investment on a country still struggling with democracy and democratic principles. So Venezuela was the source of the oil, but Exxon did not want to put its refinery on Venezuela territory. And so they chose a a Dutch island, which has uh, the legal security and, uh, and all the protection the big investors would like to have. But it had the proximity to Venezuela, it's very 30 kilometers from here. So we got the establishment of this huge oil refinery on such a small island uh, because of these historical coincidences. It, it went on to be a 50% of our economy until it suddenly closed in 1985, which caused a huge impact. Uh, you could imagine uh, 2007, eight crisis in the U.S. was a drop of 15% of GDP. This was a drop of 50% of a GDP, 40% unemployment, suddenly. So the leaders at that moment had to think about a rescue plan for Aruba, and they developed an idea which was based on the tourism experience that Aruba was already having, which we never capitalized on because we were well covered by Libet tourism and the industry. Uh, so they looked at what can we do to save the island and so decided we're going to double up our hotel capacity in Aruba. So we had 2,000 rooms. They said, well, we're going to build 2,000 more. And so we create new jobs. We reschool the people that work in the industry. Kind of a challenge for the United States now with uh, some of the changes in the economy. We reschool the people so they can work in the tourism industry. And Aruba has, if I may say so, one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. It's always in the top 10 of uh, every selection made. And so it was not that difficult at some moment to attract hotels. So that plan was so successfully executed that it even surpassed the target number. So from 2000, we wanted to go to 4,000. And in a very few years, we ended up at 8,000 hotel rooms on that beautiful stretch of beaches. It seemed like every government that came afterwards, every time they felt that there was a challenge economically, create more jobs, we built another hotel. So when I come around 2001, 2002, I look at Aruba as it is at that moment. I'm in the opposition. I'm, I'm doing research. Uh, what do I have to offer if tomorrow I'm elected uh, to govern the island? And we do a quite intense reflection on where does Aruba stand and where is Aruba's future? We speak to a lot of citizens also to get a feel for where 
do they see themselves in the future? How do they experience the economy as it is at that moment? And what we feel is an anxiety that, yes, we have these hotels, but our own quality of life and, and, uh, and we're giving up so much of our beaches and Aruba is becoming so much more busy and the infrastructure. And, and so people have these conflicting interests. Uh, they, they want a good job. They want a good income, but they want the tranquility that goes with a society that doesn't move at that speed and don't have so many other people coming from everywhere. So we need to find an answer on, on those givens. Right. And, and so the idea and also the numbers, economic numbers show us that at certain moment you pass the percentage where there is a diminishing return. You can build another hotel, but you have to right. get people that you don't have on the island to come and work. So the collective burden of that, again, uh, doesn't weigh into the growth that you are creating. So you need to come with a new concept. And this all crystallized around the time that you had the world crisis 2007-2008. And in Aruba, again, this oil refinery, which was of less importance then, but still had an, uh, an impact, closed again. And I was elected in that big concern of the society with this huge downfall in the economy. But prior to this fall, I had done studies with our scientific institute. What do we want for Aruba? And what we said at that moment is, we would like to have an island that doesn't only have five-star hotels, but also five-star schools, five-star neighborhood, five-star public spaces, investments in, in our infrastructure, public health, elderly care. And what was quite a challenge is that we developed all these ambition and ideas before the crisis. So then the crisis hits 2007, 2008, Ari finally closes, and we get this huge wave that elects Mike Eman and his party. But there's no money to, to do all these ideas anymore because when we did the studies, we didn't have that crisis. So one of the first things when I enter government is answer the question, are you still going to go ahead with that vision of creating that five-star island across the board? Or are you just going to attract some more hotels and do what your predecessors did? to uh, overcome economic crisis. And, and we decided with a lot of discipline that, yes, we didn't have as much money as we had before the crisis, but there was then double reason to do the investment. And this is the, the more worldwide discussion, austerity versus stimulus. I'm a proponent of stimulus. If the economy is not going well, you need to invest. And how beautiful it was that we already knew in what we wanted to invest. We wanted to work on city renewal, neighborhood renewal, create that more equitable distribution of wealth to our society. And so that is really what uh, stipulated and marked uh, the beginning of our government. And that's also where the sustainable vision on the area of energy fits in. It's creating that more sustainable island in the area of our economy with a more actual distribution of wealth, in the area of social, talking about well-being of the citizens and the quality of life and public spaces and nicer neighborhoods, social cohesion, neighbors talking to each other. So the idea of 100% sustainability also in the area of energy fitted beautiful with that rethinking 
of a sustainable society as Aruba because the gains we would make also from using very expensive fuel oil money for investing in schools and neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, would really benefit the island. So that's where we enter government and we take this huge moment of reflection on where are we going to take Aruba and we, we try to connect all the other aspects of sustainability together. Where did the challenges begin? Where did breakdown start to happen as your, as your team began to try to roll out this concept of 100% renewable energy? The biggest challenge, and it is something that you would think that people would know, but I find that there are many political leaders, many business leaders are not well prepared to handle that challenge and underestimate the challenge. The fact that you have utility companies in your country or in your city that are accustomed of producing energy with generators are fueled by fuel oil. You have a large organization with technicians that for generations have learned themselves this technique of how to produce energy. Wind and solar energy, they might have read it somewhere, but their first reaction is that is kind of a threat to the way I'm doing business and that's a threat to my knowledge now is what has gives me value. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to change the way we produce energy and it's not something that I have a particular knowledge of that affects my value in society, in my company. So the concern starts at the top of the utility company and goes all the way down. And you cannot make this transition. You cannot make this transition if the utilities are not on board. Because as I say also on many platforms, they can literally pull the plug on you. <laughs> and, and, and so it is, it is not either, even in Aruba, where the utility company is 100% owned by the government, it is not that you can order the utility company, this is my vision, in 10 years, I want it to become totally sustainable, you'll have to change the whole way we produce energy from fuel oil generated generators to renewable energy, wind, solar, uh, and and other options. You have to bring them along because if you just order it, it's like asking a turkey to prepare a Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) They would experience this as something very threatening for their own livelihood. So getting the utilities on board, making them part of the thinking process is crucial for this to be successful. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience that just entering, I, I, we were already excited. We had written policy documents. Uh, we had filed motions in parliament. In our office where I'm sitting here is the party headquarter. Uh, we had put windmills to show that we are uh, serious about this. I hope maybe one of your listeners are of the Michigan University. I brought the solar car of Michigan University to Aruba in the opposition and we showcased it at schools. Uh, you know those solar cars that race in Australia? Yeah. Uh, Michigan is one of them that always comes in 
uh, first or second. Right. Yeah. And, and they would compete with the Dutch uh, TU Delft, which is always almost the first. Being so close, we invited them to come to Aruba. It was a big project. The car has to be put in a container. But it was to visualize in a very tangible way, in a way that you also get in a new generation to connect with the, the, the new concepts of producing energy. And, and that's a responsibility that leaders also should uh, accept that it's not just a question of designing in a boardroom certain goals without investing time and energy and creativity in creating support at all levels in society uh, for that vision. So we experienced very early in, in my administration that create that support and that buy-in of the utility company to also agree and, and wanting to do this is essential. And in our experience, with time, we got a very excited utility companies that the utility company that came up with many other ideas uh, and many other uh, research like they're doing now. Uh, they have uh, one megawatt storage battery. Tesla, uh, they're testing out at this moment. Uh, they are working with a pressured container system for air press container underwater. These are all new storage ideas. Right. Uh, so when the energy fluctuates and, and you see that uh, once you have them on board, I mean, they are, these people are the technicians. They know about this stuff. Uh, I'm a politician. So if I say this is what we're going to do and, and they would come out on TV and say, well, I don't know if this guy had uh, too much sun or, or he hit his head, probably people will believe the technician and, and, and not, the, not the prime minister who is not technician. So you need to have the utilities on board and the technicians on board. When we last spoke, I think Aruba was somewhere around 30% of renewables. Is that accurate still? Yes. Uh, yeah. Around 18% wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a wind, uh, wind park that has a total capacity of 30 megawatts. Mm-hmm. Aruba's consumption is more or less 100 uh, megawatts, 110, 100 megawatts. And the uh, wind energy park has a capacity of 30 megawatts and it runs at around 18 megawatts. Uh, That's uh, maybe for your audience also to know that that's quite impressive because at average in any other locations in the world, a installation of 10 megawatts produces like four megawatts, like 40%. And in Aruba it produces 60%. So almost a no brainer to put yeah. windmills in Aruba. Yeah, I learned, I learned to kite surf in Aruba. You're not telling me anything I don't already know. Yeah, it's <laughs> one of the best and most consistent winds in the world. Yes, and, and so we're blessed with that. So we have this park, and then we have a huge, large park that produces around three, three and a half megawatts. Maybe you saw that, Nico, when you were oh, yeah. in Aruba in the airport? It wasn't yet installed when I was there, but it is, uh, it's an impressive, I've seen photos of it for sure. It's the airport uh, solar install. Mm-hmm. It's operational uh, for a couple of years now, and it produces three, three and a half uh, megawatts of solar energy. And it's, it's quite nice because uh, Aruba has advanced this concept of uh, green island that is working with a vision to become totally sustainable. And beautiful that when visitors come and they open the door of the airport and you see that whole huge parking garage uh, fully covered PVs and it has more functions naturally, an island with a lot of sun, produces energy on the roof, but underneath it produces shade for the cars, which is quite important 
on an island like Aruba. And uh, during the evening time, it's also like a roof and has lights. And there are also uh, charging stations for the EV cars under uh, that roof, that big roof. And then we have one that recently got onto the grid. That's almost six megawatts. Actually, in 2017, I think it was around May, we did the groundbreaking for that solar park. And Mr. Richard Branson was in Aruba to uh, be part of that groundbreaking. So almost 10% of the grid is is solar, 18% is wind. You guys are working on wave energy and many others. One of the questions that stands out for me is how difficult the conversation is around not the first 50%, but the second 50%, right? And you made this declaration. You were the first in the Caribbean to declare that you'd go 100% renewables back in 2012. It's been, uh, you know, we're knocking on seven years here uh, of, uh, of work and it's hard work to make that happen. I think that's an accelerated time frame. Most of the claims that we're seeing right now hover around the 2035, 2040 time frame in the United States for municipalities or states uh, or some of the utilities around 2040, uh, both for renewables and, and fleet uh, utilization to be converted to electric vehicles, et cetera. As a policy setter and as someone who's been intimately involved in this, where do you see the challenge and the dichotomy between the first 50% getting done and then the completion? Ideal uh, situation is if the total capacity is not filled in only by large utility size installations. I find as a missed opportunity in this process, we don't get 20, 30% of the capacity distributed that that be them on schools, you see them on government buildings, we see them on our houses, and uh, unfortunately, and that's part of the reason we are at the numbers we are at now. One is you'll always have a discussion when you want to build your next windmill park. Neighborhood issues. Uh, uh, we had one with the second windmill park uh, that would have already been up and running. The NIMBY issue, yeah, not in my the backyard. NIMBY issues. Up until now, and when I say now, I mean, it changes by the day or by the hour. But for a typical household, medium income that would, and we lowered the import duties to 2% on like normally technical appliance imported in Aruba pays like 22%. In order to encourage solar energy, wind energy also in, in household application, uh, we lowered the, uh, the, the import duties to 2%, which we actually also did with electrical cars in the hope that the household application and the independent companies that would also be part of this 2020 goal uh, would at the end be 20 to 30% of the totality. Uh, what we found is that uh, individuals and households that made the calculation of the investment versus the return on the investment were not that excited. What are they currently paying for energy on a kilowatt hour basis? It's like uh, if you take it in dollar cents, it's we pay 20, 33, 24 uh, dollar cents uh, for, for energy. So 24 cents per kilowatt hour in US dollars, which is equal to some of the uh, comparable rates in California. And that still isn't compelling for most of the Aruban. No, if I would just translate it into uh, some number that anyone could relate to, uh, is that 
a lot of uh, the calculations when you go and uh, you have to borrow the money from a bank to do the investment. Say the investment is $30,000, $35,000 to cover 700 kilowatts uh, in, in your house, which is the average use in Aruba uh, because of air conditioning. People would come out around four, five, six years, and they would say, hmm, uh, return investment is too long. That's remarkable because in, in the United States, a five-year return on investment would be almost a no-brainer on an asset that you're going to have for 25 years. Yeah, maybe it's the fast pace of small island, but I think if it was two, three years, people would, uh, uh, that's also the time that they get to pay your car in Aruba. It's like between three and four years, then the car is yours. Yeah. So I think maybe that's the reference in, in people's mind a little bit. Uh, like I purchase a car, I pay in three, four years, it's mine. And, and, and maybe the calculation of seven years, that looks more like a house uh, mortgage than, so maybe that has to do with culture. Hey Warrior, have you ever designed a system right in front of a customer? Now, for some of you sales folks, that might sound crazy, but for some solar developers, it's crazy genius. In a traditional sales meeting, you show up with a presentation and numbers, and that sets up a subtly adversarial relationship where you're trying to convince the customer of the validity of your numbers and the value of the system that you've created for them. With Helioscope's intuitive design software, some savvy sales teams are flipping that script. Instead of showing up with a presentation, you're showing up with a list of questions. And only when you get to know the customer, understand their priorities, constraints, etc., do you then design a system right in front of them, often with the customer looking over your shoulder every step of the way. That's when a certain magic happens. The customer now owns the system. And with Helioscope's new proposal tool, you can actually design, pitch, and close in one meeting. Give it a try and transform your sales process. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. As a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days for a 60-day free trial with Helioscope. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. And I know you are a fan of time savings. So I'd ask, what would you do with two extra hours every day? What if there was a better way to run your reports, send your invoices, manage your projects at all stages, monitor your sites? And what if none of that involved copying and pasting from the dreaded Excel? Our friends over at PowerHub make solar projects and portfolios easier to manage. PowerHub is flexible and customizable so it can support your business and make your life easier, saving you time and making your business money. See, using PowerHub makes you look good. How's that for ROI? Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. And herein, Mike, lies the argument that I have uh, and that many in the industry in the U.S. have. My friend Mark Lapata and I talk about this. I know you you know Mark. Like We talk about this a fair amount that folks just turn a blind eye to the Caribbean or they they rush in foolhardy thinking that because power is north of 25 cents a kilowatt hour for the average consumer on any given island, that it's it's like picking apples from the lowest you know hanging branch of a tree. They don't realize that there are market dynamics. I mean, every single country in the Caribbean is its own island state, but there also is this dynamic that the total available market, the TAM of Aruba, is is how many households? We have forty thousand households in Aruba. 
And in context, California did 80,000 residential rooftops last year and is expected to do 120,000 this year with the institution of the new policy. So someone could have twice the scale of Aruba as a total available market just in one state in the United States. And that's one of the challenges with the Caribbean and small island developing states in general, isn't it? That the the social experiment uh, has to apply to a very, a relatively small container and still attract investment from the exterior to try to help make it viable, right? Obviously, you guys are connected to the Netherlands, you're a Dutch island nation. You've got help from UNDP. You've got now a sustainable center of excellence on island. Uh, Congratulations for that. How does this social experiment of Aruba translate to the broader Caribbean? How can we as a community in the solar industry think of business models that, that, that do make it viable for 20, 30% of your generation to be distributed by helping create a, a case for renewables, just not just in Aruba? Like, Is there a movement that we should be aware of that is happening within the Caribbean that ties you all together as a, as a buying agency somehow? Is there a way for... Dutch companies or U.S. companies or Mexican companies even to see the Caribbean broadly as a market versus each individual small island developing state? How do we think about that? I would say uh, if you look at a business model of a telecom company, and I don't know if you know the company Digicel. Of course, yeah. Huge presence in the Caribbean and Central America. Right. So here's a company that comes in uh, in the Caribbean and looks at the Caribbean as one total market. Doesn't see Aruba has only 100,000 inhabitants, but makes a calculation of what the value is if they would get a substantial part of the market of the whole Caribbean and develops a marketing and establishment strategy to enter in all these markets and compete with the government-owned telecom company in all of this market, which was not easy for DigiCell to do. First, to enter these markets where most of them had the monopoly of a state-owned uh, telecom company. And they were still successful of establishing themselves mostly in all the islands as the second mobile phone company on almost every Caribbean island with a very professional product, very professional marketing, but also a uniform marketing in a sense that I think probably they had some very efficient return on their marketing value by having designed some strategies that are very much translatable from one island to the other. And I think it was in five to seven years that Digicel conquered a big part of the telecom marketing. So I would say, again, not being an expert, and and, and that's something that the solar providers will have to look at themselves, but I would say if I would be standing out and, and asking myself, what type of approach would work to look at these islands as a potential market, I would kind of visit what this experiment with uh, Digicel did and how they did it, what type of strategy they had to not look at one island as just a small market, but look at it as a series of islands uh, where each one has their their, their, their challenges with their own uh, regulatory bodies for uh, mm-hmm. establishing also uh, on the grid and connecting to the grid. But it was the same with Digicel. And, and they still found a way to enter these markets. And uh, I think 
very successfully so. I believe that these huge solar companies in the US, for instance, that have these quite attractive business models where uh, not necessarily uh, the household will have to pay for the full installation, but that they could purchase for a competitive price compared to uh, what they're getting from the grid, from the utility company. That would be a, a interesting model. And, and uh, we would have welcomed that type of proactive industries that would have entered uh, and be part of uh, the whole uh, energy that, that we have going uh, towards sustainability. But it, it, it's not there yet. There's not one U.S. company or other comparable to Digicel and Telecom that is really going to all these islands and offer one or two uh, attractive products. So on almost every island, you see that the individual installations are falling behind in comparison uh, with the utility size installations. I find that unfortunately because I, I would find it beautiful when, when we say Aruba has reached 100% renewable energy that you don't have to go to five big large parks to see that but you will be driving around and you will see the sunroofs everywhere. Where it would be impossible not to see it, right? Where it's uh, it's just ever present. Yeah, you've got states, uh, or you've got countries like Barbados and um, Curaçao, even one of your neighbors, which have high penetration of residential and commercial solar. So it's interesting to think through how we can extrapolate from what they've done, and a lot of, and that has been policy driven, right? Post prime minister, you're now a climate change ambassador. You're helping other small and developing states think through how they can survive what's happening in the era of climate change and how it's impacting in particular islands more so than a lot of the more developed and larger nations. What do you feel are some key lessons and takeaways for you that you're transmitting to other leaders in your constituency? Maybe we should start with the advantages. I mean, the advantages first for your environment and, and our contribution, even though our footprint is, is not that large in the world, but uh, the symbolic contribution to uh, lowering the emission of the CO2 is, is very valuable. I found that when we started that I, I, I received a lot of support from uh, international institutes uh, such as Carbon War Room, uh, Mr. Richard Branson himself, Jose Maria Figueres, uh, and afterwards uh, when they connected the institution to the Rocky Mountain Institute, a lot of support of the technicians of Rocky Mountain Institute to help design and, and help uh, think about the pathway. IRENA, also very helpful. Clinton Foundation came to Aruba and, and be part of training process that were linked to our Green Conference. So United States government, Vice President Biden, was quite proactive in, in, in thinking along with the Caribbean on making the transition to renewable uh, energy. United Nations, UNDP established the Center of Excellence in Aruba. So there's so many benefits for an island to, to take a leading role uh, in, in this area because you find a lot of good friends at high places that would be willing to support you, even if it's just to prove their case that it can be done. Uh, I, I always remember Carbon War Room uh, telling me, we are in Aruba because you have the skill and the will to do this and we would like to prove to the world that it can be done. To start small, then we start small with a nice example. And that brought us to Rio Plus 2012, where we announced together with Mr. Richard Branson and Cabo Warroom, Aruba's 
goal to become totally sustainable in 2020. And the areas where Mrs. Figueres, the climate ambassador for UN, asked us to take 10 other islands along, and, and, and the rest is history that Carbon World Rocky Mountain Institute today are uh, assisting many other islands. The Caribbean started with Aruba in, in Rio and, and the announcement we made at that time. And what also is, is kind of a no-brainer if you look at how our um, uh, we import 6,000, we used to import 6,000 uh, barrels of fuel oil a day uh, to produce our energy. That lowered to almost half, 3,500. Uh, if you just calculate the savings at $16, sometimes $80 a barrel, huge amount of, of savings for the utility company and for the government to invest in other priorities like schools and quality of life. So there are a lot of benefits to it. Mike, we could wax uh, prophetic here on a number of topics. I want to ask you a few questions that I usually do as I end up uh, the interview. And I've had a really fascinating hour with you here. I know that you are uh, a fan of reading, as am I. I'd love to get your perspective on what books have shaped and influenced your leadership style. Uh, Maybe you've recommended a book or two that you'd like to recommend here to our audience. People that uh, inspire me, I buy almost every new biography. Mm -hmm. If it's John F. Kennedy, if it's Martin Luther King, if it's Robert Kennedy, Pope Paul II, I mean, everyone that is inspiring and setting out... Uh, kind of bigger humanitarian vision of a, a better world. I, I try to read a lot what motivates them, what moves mm-hmm. them. I would say to anyone, yeah, there is a lot of recreational and fascinating and a lot of very technical and important reading. But if you really want to know about how things have changed at a certain moment in history, very often it is leaders with people brought about change and then someone stands up like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or John F. Kennedy or, or the Pope and really sets new goals and, 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 and visions that inspire a lot of people to say that's where we have to go. So it's, I would recommend reading biographies. Do you have one or two that you've read recently or, or that stand out to you as just really impactful that you've recommended? The, the last one I, I read of uh, Robert Kennedy had a very short campaign, ended tragically with him being uh, killed. Uh, and I think the name was uh, 76 Days uh, uh, Campaign. And I, I recommend that to everybody. Very well. Well, you and I have uh, recently been having communication over Twitter. So I know that you are there at Mike G. Amen, and I'll link to that. Is there anywhere else that you would send folks to, to look for you and interact with you? I think Twitter uh, for uh, the international platform is uh, the most interesting. I have a Facebook page, Mike Eman also. We are in the process now of relaunching. I had a web page called PMO Aruba, Prime Minister of Aruba uh, page. Naturally, I'm not Prime Minister anymore. So we're relaunching Prime Minister of Aruba page under MikeEman.com. Well, Mike, as we bid farewell, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? May I turn it around what I would like to see happen? Sure. Uh, I find that a lot of the technical appliances that we are developing now, be it the latest iPhone, etc., any of these new gadgets, 
I find a missing link towards a, a public good, a, a humanitarian cause. It, it seems like it all is for a kind of a convenience or, or, or just to be newer than newer. If these institutes and all these engineers would try to connect innovation technology and, and ideas and intellectual ideas that they have for these new appliances, try to connect something of a more tangible value for, I don't want to end up too complicated, but Nico, we are living in times where people are questioning our democratic system, people having doubts. As we're speaking, there's discussion on Brexit uh, in, in, in the UK Parliament, uh, institutions that, that seem to work now, people have uh, huge question marks and people feel alienated or, or, or left behind. If we are developing new ideas, new technology, let's try to address these issues that are kind of destabilizing our world uh, at, at this moment and, and, and see where this technology and all innovation can help create some more clarity on where we're going and how everyone can can be part of of that future yeah your friend and mine jigger on his uh energy gang podcast often says the same or, or something very similar which is if we could convince and i actually Stephen lacy on the show said said this as his 2018 sort of parting thought what he wished would for 2019 how can we get the brain trust the intellectual uh, stored value of the generation that's creating uh, new apps for Twitter to really focus on climate change and really focus on community sustainability. If we could turn that intellectual capacity towards solving real problems rather than how to get you to click through to this or that product on Amazon, we would be closer to solving some of humanity's problems rather than creating more. <laughs> Nico, on, on, on closing uh, on that TEDx, which I participated in, that TEDx uh, was uh, held in the Netherlands and I was the last speaker. Before me, there were like 10 other speakers, all had ideas for sustainability. And, and one that stayed uh, on my mind was uh, a gentleman who presented, also showing how technology can help with issues that, that uh, are really uh, challenging for communities nowadays. He said he had an accident and, and uh, he was laying at home. He could not, his mobility was affected. At some point, his family would be drained by amount of assistance they had to give him. And laying there, he wished that there was a service that he could access via social media uh, and to say, well, here I am. This is how my needs. And because of that experience, after he recuperated, he created a platform where People that have certain need can post that in this platform and people that are willing to help in certain areas, uh, helping an elderly at home, get their medicine, uh, go by and visit. And he brings the demands and the offer together, but this socially. And it is now an existing platform. And that shows how we can use the technology uh, for the better good. Well, Mike, Eamon, thank you so much for your contribution, not just to our time here on Suncast, but to humanity, to the betterment of the social equity in Aruba and to our, our charge and commitment to improve the global 
sustainability of the power and energy that we utilize, right? So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. And come and visit again. I will. Absolutely. And your audience, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) There you go, Solar Warriors. Look up Mike when you get to Aruba. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. I learned a ton, and I hope that you did as well. Man, Mike Eamon is such an inspiration. I'd love it if you'd share this episode. Share the love with him at Mike G. Eamon on Twitter. I'm at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O, over on Twitter. I'd love it if you just shout it out to him and tell him how much you appreciate him coming on Suncast. If you'd like to learn more about Mike or even connect with him, then click on the listen button at mysuncast.com. That'll take you to the episodes page where you can get the show notes, social media and website links for Mike, incredible book recommendations and more. By the way, the book Mike recommended is called 85 Days, The Last Campaign of Robert Kennedy, and I've linked to it on the show notes page. While you're on the website, I'd love it if you would sign up for the newsletter. I'd also like you to consider becoming a member of the Suncast Tribe, my inner circle of supporters where I share exclusive content and communicate about what is going on in the world of Suncast. Stuff that doesn't make it on the show, stuff that's pouring out of my head and uh, may or may not ever make it into an episode. And finally, I mentioned in the intro that I'm opening up a couple of coaching spots for February. You know, over the years, I've worked with dozens of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and professionals in transition, helping those struggling to clarify their mission or looking to set or stretch targets and goals and willing to just work through the barriers to get their own growth kick-started or up to the next level. My clients have hit their first million-dollar year, started their own podcasts, gotten dream jobs, and generally seek my guidance or advice to level up in business and life. You can send me an email to express interest and I'll make sure you get the application. I'll only be accepting two more people this quarter. So email me at nico at mysuncast.com. Until next time, I look forward to hearing from you on Twitter, LinkedIn. They're all linked over on mysuncast.com. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.